Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to the designer and educator, John Caserta. John is currently an associate professor at the Rhode Island School of Design and is the founder of the Design Office, which is sort of this work and project space for independent designers uh, up in Providence. While John was the chair of RISD's undergrad graphic design program over the last few years, the department really restructured the entire curriculum to put a greater emphasis on using design as a form of inquiry. And the faculty there spent a lot of time trying to find new ways to teach students about graphic design as an expanded practice and how they can tear down what is often seen as a divide between thinking and making. And so they have this term critical making that they use a lot uh, about how they think about their work. And this is obviously something that's very much related to what this podcast is about and the things we talk about on this podcast. So John and I talk about that and how they think about teaching today's incoming design students up at RISD, as well as his own background in journalism and and design and how his work as a designer and teacher across different mediums feeds into this really interesting unified practice. I'm a big fan of what RISD is doing and think is very aligned with what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And I'm a big fan of John's work and thinking around design and design education. So it was great to talk to him about how he thinks about all of these things and how it really manifests itself in his own practice. So I had a lot of fun with this one and I think you'll enjoy my conversation with John Caserta. So I have a lot of things. There's a lot that I'm really interested in talking to you about, and I'm not totally sure exactly how this structure is going to go because I feel like we could go all over the place. But I, I thought a good way to start was just a little bit of your background because I had noticed in reading about you that you originally had studied journalism. Uh, and so I'm kind of interested in a little bit about that background and where where design kind of came into your life or how you started uh working as a designer? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm from North Carolina and, um, I went to a small kind of pri- country private school. Um, you know, it was sort of cheap and freewheeling, but it was yeah. like where the auto dealerships kids went and things like that. So I had a pretty good, um, uh, it was like pretty relaxed atmosphere. Um, lucky for me, there was a a bunch of Apple IIEs that they bought when I was in whatever middle school, kind of late elementary school. So I spent quite a bit of time playing with that stuff, uh, particularly on rainy days and so forth. So uh, there was also dot matrix printers hooked up to it. So I, I had this sort of early epiphany around uh, programming in BASIC, uh, the programming language, so there was no GUI interface on an Apple IIe. And uh, I was able to like make uh, patterns and forms, uh, directly in basic language programming code. So that was sort of this, um, hook and lucky for me, I had a, a kooky aunt in Austin, Texas who programmed in Pascal and she sent me her Apple two C when she moved on to some sort of IBM. Uh, so this would be in the eighties. Uh, I think the Mac had just come out, but I mean, things moved kind of slow back then. So that was like this thing that was in the Duke University library that I remember I kept trying to put in floppy disks that didn't really have the right operating system. I was like, but it fits. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, so I was sort of in the Apple, uh, you know, I would do all my papers on it before it was required and I would kind of figure out every possible piece of software to run, um, on it and, and eventually kind of upgraded to the Mac classic in high school. Um, and the journalism piece was, uh, I would say that, um, in where I was, Newspapers were, it was a vibrant time, late 80s, early 90s. I mean, USA Today came out in 1981, maybe, and really started to push newspapers yeah. into color. So as a, as, a, as a kid or just as a citizen, I actually delivered newspapers uh, on my bicycle in the afternoon, like the afternoon oh, yeah. paper kind of thing. So they were like very present as 
design objects and they were fairly well tended to they were cared for in a way um they, they certainly weren't all paginated yet but mm-hmm. there was that influence so i got an internship in in high school at the at the durham herald and um did like a one month kind of internship in my senior year i was also editor of the high school paper oh yeah which you know, meant i got to paginate it and do all that kind of stuff so i really was into the the printing i was into the mass production piece and um, although when I went to college at University of North Carolina, went there in 91, uh, I was thinking of studying math and, in fact, um, was an applied science major, but had spent was spending all my time at the Daily Tar Heel, which was a daily newspaper. So I was graphics editor and they won the national championship in my sophomore oh, wow. year. So you know, there was tons to do with that um, in terms of designing the, the paper itself. And that was paginated for the most part, although there was still paste up and quite a bit of the sort of production uh the days of the days of old were kind of in yeah. there a little bit as well uh and i, I think it, it, at some point i realized there was a there was a way i could do graphic design and get a degree it was kind of like really like college you can just do this thing that you love and actually get a degree for it and it was pretty yeah. uh pretty surprising because i think i had to kind of just stumble on that myself at some point um and it, and it was um the journalism school, there was a very small visual communications department. David Reinford had gone there a couple years before. Oh, okay. um, uh, the professor told me about his work a bit. And so I knew that there were different ways to apply my knowledge, although I was really taken by jur- the journalistic version of design, which for me also meant drawing. I spent a lot of time in the art department mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to how to draw, like how to render and was doing quite a bit of um, information graphics. So my first few years out of school, um, were in, in newspapers. Um, I, in fact, I've been watching the OJ, uh, um, oh, yeah. the OJ, the, the sort of longer version. I know there's the ESPN, it's the non ESPN version. And, uh, I remember where I was in, during the Bronco chase and that was at the Virginian pilot. Uh, and then we went to right. the bar after, you know, but to yeah. continue because, uh, you know, that's, that's where you could see it. So, um, so I was at the Virginian pilot as an intern and I went to the Atlanta Constitution. The Olympics was there. That was fabulous. There was a ton going on. So we drew all these like 3D renderings of like the high dive platform and all this, all these graphics. And I was freelancing a bunch as well. Uh, FedEx, my SideQuest 44, you know, disc off to Brazil and, you know, they would publish stuff. So it was a very vibrant time in in print. But as soon as the Olympics was ending, I um, took a jog in my two weeks notice the last day of the Olympics and went to Chicago and worked for the Tribune uh, in the online section. So I skipped over to online. I was designing websites um, starting really in 94, 95, but um, never really more than just a freelance gig or anything. I remember when that's, uh, you know, the Mosaic browser came out and that really, that really offered visual yeah. people a chance to make images and so yeah. forth. So, so I was excited to jump into it. Um, and Chicago, the Tribune was doing amazing stuff in that period. Um, they had already launched their website. It was, um, you know, full of dynamic stuff like you know backend uh, graphics and um, some animation. So I was I joined a really uh, wonderful team and stayed there for three years. Um, by the end, I think I was just kind of ready for a break. You know, it's because I had started kind of early and was excited as a kid. I think I'd been sort yeah. of working. I put my 10,000 hours, my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000, right. really by that point. Uh, so I was just sort of like, wait a second, you can actually go to Europe and travel and hang out. And right. yeah, so yeah. I took a, essentially took a year off, but I had a bunch of freelance kind of following me. So I was doing work for National Geographic, mm. designing their um, some of their editorial modules um, pitched a story in the New York Times from uh, Cambodia about the Viet, uh, the the 25th anniversary of the fall of uh, Saigon, and so was still working in somewhat of a journalistic capacity, but was sort of trying on different ways to do it. Um, and then eventually took a job in San Francisco at Quaka Sports, which was an internet darling of the 90s. Okay, um, it did go under eventually. I was there for about a year before it went under, but. Um, Stamen Design, actually Eric Rodenbeck was working there, Lisa Strassfeld. Oh, wow. Pentagram, um, Josh Ohm, um, Brian Hicks. I mean, just a you know pretty deep bench of, uh, of talent. And what I could see there, this was uh, 2000 to 2001, 
what I could see there was that there was clearly a different way to see design and do design, mm-hmm. um, even if it was actually the end form was not that dissimilar from what I had been doing, diagrammatical information right. design. But their process and their aesthetic touch and all of these things I could see were um, beyond what I had been doing and, and, and wanted more of that. Yeah. So, that was my one of my feeders to grad school, I would say. Uh, so 2001, that company went under, and I started to think about uh, grad school at either the Media Lab or at the Yale School of Art. And I had honed in on those after talking with lots of different people, mostly casually. So alums from, from the Yale program, David Reinford included yeah. in that. Alicia Naples was out on the West Coast, and she came out of the Yale program. Um, so various friends I had intersected with in the media lab, Maida was one of my heroes in the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, his early computation work yeah. and the alums from that, um, were incredible. So I went and looked at his group at that moment and opted to go to the school of art at Yale because it really tapped into this other piece was, which was a critical thinking, uh, uh, element. Um, how could I make work that has its own voice that has its own um relevance in the right. world and obviously right. that could happen in a it does happen in a in, at mit certainly in other schools but i don't think it had quite the visual acuity that i was looking for it didn't quite you know it wasn't necessarily uh visual I, and and i wanted to work in ways that were spatial yeah. dan michelson's thesis show was uh, his his final work was up when i visited uh which must have been 2001 I entered the program in 2002. Okay. So that was a sort of year before Juliet Cesar was also finishing in 2001. Oh, yeah. So I think there were influences that I could clearly see. And those personalities continue to be um, you know, mentors and role models for me in terms of how they mix their work with their yeah. pedagogy and also their, um, you know, their, uh, yeah, their, their writing. I have a couple, there are a couple interesting things in here that I just kind of want to pull out before we, uh, kind of move forward to your current work. And, and one of them that was really interesting to me is that you went in to study journalism kind of around this love of newspapers, but it was newspaper as an object, newspaper as a, a piece of design, um, mm. which I think is, is really interesting. Were you? And so I have two questions about that. One, were you aware, I, I, I don't know how to phrase this exactly. Were you aware that this was a thing that was designed and and were you kind of thinking about that as you were looking at these as you were delivering papers um you know like what what was it about that the object or the form of the newspaper that you were so attracted to at you know a somewhat young age um it's a good question I, i i was probably seduced by some of the novelties of of that period like i would say usa today or the, the sort of the yeah that it seemed to be contemporary a u.s news and world report which was a, a magazine was producing really interesting information graphics national geographic was also getting into that as well so there was this combination of the machine, like, so what can the, the Mac or even sort of more complex mm-hmm. soft, software and hardware combinations do? Right. So I think I was, I, was a, I was a technophile, and that's how I got kind of into uh, oh, I design, I would say, is through basic or through, um, in college, I would just sort of go through my computer's operating system and look at every asset, you know, and, I, and you could actually edit those assets in sort of early Mac stuff, you could just kind of, the security wasn't the same. You could just change what everything right. is, you know, icons. And so right. I, I kind of liked, I think it's a, it's a sort of a deconstruct, deconstructionist analytical approach to design where I, and, and I think the n- newspaper as database maybe mm. was what was really, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few things. There was the seductive kind of color. It's pretty, there's like, you know, things you can do that I wasn't seeing really in books and so forth. Although clearly they were happening. I just didn't have access to them on a daily right. basis. And then I think just newspaper as data, it's, it's, it's updating all the time. There's different content in there. There's a structure, but yet it's not really the same every day. I mean, it, it was a, almost this like problem yeah. that I was trying to understand and wanted to be a part of. Yeah. That's, oh yeah, that's really interesting. And so, so, so you're in school and you're studying journalism, what kind of classes are you taking or what are you doing kind of at that time? 
Yeah, the program was pretty small. The visual communication program was pretty small. So there was um, the requirements of, of the journalism school, which was like media law and reporting and oh. editing. So I took the, the basic courses that any writer or um, oh, okay. reporter would have taken, which I think was very helpful. Um, and there were probably three or four of those. And then there were probably like three uh, design classes, J85, which was like the world of graphic design, Okay. which would just kind of like, what's a pica, right. what's form, counterform, gestalt. It's kind of like if you're in art school, it's like four of those combined. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. type one plus the form. <laughs> right. And then there was an upper level version of that. And there was a and then huh. there was a publication class. And then I did an independent study. So okay. I think I did four classes. And those were over two years. But the good thing about UNC is you can pile on a lot of there's there's the distribution requirements are pretty broad. So I was in the art department a lot. I hung out with the photographers. They were the ones okay. who were there all night printing pictures. Yeah. So I took photo classes too. And those were my that was mostly my community. I think the there was no graphic design in the art school because that was all at NC State. Right. And so really if you're a designer You'd either transfer or you would sort of find your way later after you went through mm -hmm. the art department, you know. Mm -hmm. So you, you said that you, you had picked going to Yale for graduate school because of that kind of critical uh, critical theory around design that Yale has. Where did that where did your interest in that come in or where were you kind of introduced to uh, graphic design as being more than just, uh, you know, window dressing or, you know, kind of choosing colors and, and typefaces? Yeah, I think, well, I remember Jessica Helfen's work being well distributed. Uh, she had a book about the screen right. or screens, yeah. series of essays, maybe. Um, she had a connection or con continues to have a connection with Yale. Yep. Uh, I did not know her at the time. I, I did know that she designed the first New York Times website. And oh, I think right. that happened while I was at the Tribune. The Tribune actually was one of the first out of the blocks. I think San Jose and Tribune, a few newspapers were were quicker than New York, but mm -hmm. so I was aware of her work um, professionally beginning at that point. I also there there wasn't a huge web presence when I when I was applying, so this was two thousand and one or two, right. and so it wasn't as though there was a huge roster of faculty. I wasn't aware of how influential the Dutch faculty were. I was not aware of Michael Rock at all. Um, there were so many things that came my way when I was there that were pleasurable and unexpected and that I was, I would say it was, um, the visit that I did there was huge because the show was up and I could sit with the students right. and what I could see is that there was more to design than sort of the, uh, the modernist, um, right. Aesthetic or the modernist principles that I was still probably living by, right. I was right. still kind of digesting that um, how do you, you know, the role of the machine and the sort of utopian 20th century and simplicity of form and, and all of those things, even though, I, you know, we were at the end of the 90s and it, all I would have had to done is look around and I could have seen Emmett <laughs> right. Ray and all that. Yeah. But I don't think, I think I was blind to that because I was, huh. I was sort of feeling like simplicity and communication and all those journalistic values, I think had blinded me to kind of some of the formal and intellectual tenets of postmodernism, which were there's so many of those to see in, in California. I, I want to kind of I kind of want to use that to connect to to today and kind of what you're doing now. And I know that there's a gap there, but I, I, it seems like a lot of the things you're doing today started in that time based on, the, you know, the way I'm kind of piecing this together. What were, when you were at Yale, what were what were your goals at the time or what were you kind of thinking you wanted to do after that or what were you hoping to get out of that that experience well it, the goal quickly became survival you know <laughs> yeah. right of course uh, i i had not I, I had a sense of what design was and i was there to get better at it mm -hmm. what i realized was that it was not what i thought it it, it was actually much more than yeah. what i thought it was it's yeah. more like being dropped in a country and just kind of figuring it out, you mm -hmm. know? So I, I felt yeah. like I was starting over much more than I really was. Um, and I, and so I think the first year was, it was kind of getting battered around and kind of understanding things. And I actually did hold on and, I, and I'll try to connect this to the present moment a bit as well. Um, I, I found solace in 
in some of the intellectual components of grad school because those were more familiar, perhaps, mm. um, just by being someone who had been curious and had read. And part of how I realized I wanted to go to grad school was I was hanging out at William Stout Books in San Francisco mm. and was, was seeing just the wealth of published work. Many of it came out of architecture because right. that bookstore, which I believe still exists, um, is heavy yeah. into architecture and but had quite a bit of graphic design. So I, I um, you know, grad school began as a kind of re reset. Right. And, uh, and, and meeting and, and understanding, you know, who was teaching there and why they were teaching there and what they were asking of us. Peter Hall was highly influential for me. And Jessica was, was taught some as well. Bethany Johns, who's here now oh, yeah. at RISD. Um, th th those were the folks who I immediately connected with because I think there was something that wasn't about form right? and, and form has never been a strong point for me. And of course that term is, 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 you know, ripe for a whole <laughs> yeah. podcast series. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I refer to it, I suppose, I mean the sort of the, the aesthetic uh, value or the, uh, the, the aesthetic artifact, uh, right. whether it's screen or print and kind of the importance of the message as it is kind of embedded in that. Right. Um, so what I grad school ultimately became really a, a, a means of I think it, it fulfilled that original objective of being able to initiate my own work and to be able to have a, a voice and to use design as the as the medium in which that um, voice gets expressed. Um, definitely not pure writing, definitely not video. You know, there, there are other media that exist. And I think design is is its own um, it's its own thing, and I think yeah. we should uh, continue to own it and honor it for its complexity, its ability to to mix different elements together. And so I, I, I got practice at that, you know, making making work that had um, s sophistication in its in its um, you know in its voice and what it was actually saying. Um, and and I, I was lucky because. I had a sort of a third year of grad school. I went, I went in the, the two year program and then, but, uh, the first couple of weeks of my second year, Irma boom canceled and did not come. And so, um, I decided I would apply for a Fulbright okay. instead. <laughs> so instead of hanging out for a week, uh, waiting on the next visitor, I just pushed a Fulbright application out in a week um, oh, wow. and I got it <laughs> Wow! Uh, in April. So I sort of after for, forgot about it a bit. But the proposal, um, which uh, I'm still working on in, in, in a way, was uh, to make a time capsule for the village where my father was born in Italy, mm. which is a dying Italian hill town village. And the idea is that I could go there and use design to sort of help express various aspects of their culture, could interview, could make typefaces, could do a census. I mean, all these things kind of were... Mm -hmm. um, some of them had seeds in the application, but really when I arrived, it, it, I mean, it was a, a sort of anthropological right. uh, effort um, and was valuable. And some things came out of it immediately, but I also still have not closed the time capsule. I have a hard drive and all of that kind of stuff with um, various assets. So uh, it, the title of it is Do Not Open Until 2030. So I've got uh -oh. a few more years yeah. <laughs> to close it in order to open it in right. time. Right. You know? Talk about deadlines. Yeah. Deadlines. So mine was a good generation away. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Uh, I, you know, so that actually sets up a lot of kind of what I was interested in in talking to you about uh, teaching and your kind of educational practice. So you've been teaching at RISD for uh, a while now. Um, how did that? How how did? Where did you start? When did you start teaching, or why? How did you kind of get into into the academic side of this. Yeah, but when I um, was in Italy, I, I I did not go to grad school in order to teach. It was not my intention. I didn't I didn't I was thinking I would just be a better practitioner, so to yeah. speak, um, and really wanted that next level. Part of me thought of even actually just switching fields and doing something else. Um, so that the teaching came kind of accident. I would say accidentally. My my now wife came to Italy with me. And applied to grad school from there and got into Brown and Berkeley. She's a, a, a she teaches teachers, so she was applying to ed schools, oh. 
and we decided the East Coast was probably smarter given our family connections here and uh, New York and some of the career stuff for me. And so we came to Providence. And as as it so happened, that same year that we were away, Bethany Johns was hired to, to um, take the reins of the grad department at RISD. So she put me to work fairly quickly. Like I taught, you know, winter session class and just started to kind of venture into the grad space and was, was predominantly um, working in that space. So when I started to teach full-length courses, I was kind of unprepared and, and wasn't sure that was what I wanted to do. Um, and, and in terms of just, yeah, that was 2006, the winter of 2006 was the first time I, um, you know, intersected with grad students in kind of official capacity and kept that going. And so my engagement at RISD has really just increased almost every, I wouldn't say it's every year, but I would say it become more, I became more and more connected to the school Yeah, and it became more Hmm. vital and, and interesting for me in my own work. And I would say that there are a couple benchmarks there. So 2006, I started to teach as an adjunct faculty member. I had my own practice in that period and predominantly was doing my own work. And I could sort of talk about that even as it relates to now and had um, started a and started a collective and a co-working space right. uh, a couple years later in 2007 in order to kind of define my practice as one that maybe looked more like grad school than it did uh, mm-hmm. a firm. And mm-hmm. that came out of this realization that I was probably going to be in Providence for a while. Um, my wife and I decided to stay and, and raise a family, you know, get married and raise a family and felt like if I'm going to live here, that it, this, this place, independent of my relationship with RISD at that time, really it provides an ideal place to make work projects and um right. cite them here or distribute them from here and so i wanted to do that with and i wanted to figure out who else was game right, right who right. might be leaving school or want to move here or what have you or already here the RISD piece picked up though when um i i was assigned more classes i decided to do some of those i taught four classes in one semester once oh, <laughs> wow and okay. uh and i think the next year there was a full-time opening and i realized well i could I could see how that might work with with a with the design office as sort of a nice pair. So the design mm-hmm. office was, was working fairly well, and I realized a, a, a group of people producing research in a private capacity in a sort of non-academic capacity could could parallel well with something that yeah. is sort of like my time job. So in 2012, I was hired as an assistant professor. I became department head a couple years later when John Mida left. Okay. Uh, suddenly, and Nancy Scolos became dean. She was at, she was department head, so I was department head for three years, uh, ending just a, a few months ago. So, in terms of investment at RISD or, or sort of right. uh, RISD awareness, I'm I'm now fully in, entrenched. Right. Uh, with that. You know, so you know, this podcast kind of at the highest level is about design criticism and about how we talk about design, but there are these common uh, common themes that come up again and again that are kind of sub branches of this, you know, banner of design criticism. And the re- one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that I feel like your work intersects with a couple of these branches. Um, and so I'm going to just kind of list a couple of them now, and then we can kind of, you know, piece those apart a little bit, I think. Um, and, and one of them is, is this idea of, you know, design education and how you teach design. It's something that's come up again and again that people I talk to is thinking about design critically and theoretically and intellectually. Uh, often the reason there's a disconnect from the kind of form making or the practical side of design starts with education. And I think um, you're someone who has thought a lot about that. And I know that RISD kind of recently kind of revamped the program. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about that. But then the other side of that is... Um, another thing that I talk about a lot on the podcast is how to take those kind of theoretical, critical kind of research components and actually integrate it into a practice, into kind of the studio. So it's not this thing that's kind of writing that lives off on the side, but is actually really influencing the work that you're making. And that's the other thing that I think is interesting about RISD is it as someone from the outside, it seems like all the uh, faculty there 
and the classes that, that you're teaching are very much connected to the work that you're just kind of doing in general and your own intellectual interests in design. Um, so both, I, I realize that both of those are very big uh, kind of topics, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if you could just talk a little bit, you know, maybe just to kind of set up this next section a little bit about that RISD program and how you, how you kind of think about that. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good question. I think we, um, the faculty here really, we love teaching, but we love teaching a certain way. Like, it's not as though we, we love to sort of just tell you everything we know about type history or critique all day long, like, here are my thoughts on your work. Right. We actually really love to in, embed problems into the community or embed projects into the community and sort of mm. explore them together. I mean, so I see... I see school at its best as an as an ecosystem that's vibrant and a little bit sloppy and exploring things. But there's a tremendous number of resources mm -hmm. available for us to figure that out. I mean, scheduled meetings, classes, basically scheduled meetings. We all know we're there. Right. Right. So it doesn't have to look like the same. Every class doesn't have to look the same. Every, you know, every week doesn't have to look the same. So I think we've we've really. Um, uh, institutionalized, a dynamic, um, somewhat individualized curriculum. So, and, and we've built community into our curriculum. So when, when you come in, I would say the class, if we can sort of create the sort of, what would the classic educational dynamic be, uh, particularly in graphic design education, it would be, you're going to learn how to make some stuff, like right. go in the corner and make some stuff right. with the people who know how to make stuff. Right. We love, we love them. And you'll you'll come out in the spring or maybe next fall, and you'll know how to make some stuff. You know, exacto <laughs> right. uh, rubber cement, maybe maybe some code. It doesn't really matter what the stuff is. And then we'll talk about maybe what it means, kind of what you can do with it, what's out there. And then you'll kind of top it off at the senior year or in your third. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking more BFA here. Yeah or BA with like what you think and what you want to say and sort of this kind of longer leash moment. And I'm, and I'm kind of generalizing, but I would say this, this pedagogy right. was fairly shared, you know, a 20th century kind of view of things. And, and, and some of that was because it was actually hard to make stuff for a while, you know, yeah. pre-Mac, pre-software, all, you know, all over the place. So, you know, color, we, we talk about a, a color class. We still have a color class, but it's doing kind of quote unquote more than just color. I mean, it was actually hard to communicate color to right. your printer. Yeah. Like you actually yeah. had to make your color. <laughs> right. You know, like, well, how else are you going to do it? Um, how are you going to mock it up? How are you going to show it to somebody? So there was no, you know, color printers. So, I mean, these courses came out of needs of our profession, which developed from a trade profession, maybe the combination between printing and graphic art and illustration kind of mixed into this thing. And, and, and so in kind of post-war, you got sort of, graphic art, commercial art, advertising, graphic design, which was this kind of mishmash between something trade-like and this aspiration to do something right. more. I think at this point, it feels like we can have a pretty mature, let, so let's let's kind of redefine what we are now without pulling all of that along with us. Yeah. And, and so one thing we want to do right away is honor the complexity of our profession, like right away. Like, mm -hmm. It can, you know, there's a lot of media out there. There's a lot of ways to say things. There's a lot of types of people making the work and receiving the work. So just right. audience and um, what access they have. Mm -hmm. And so our curriculum has some skills in it. We do want to teach typography. We kind of teach type. I would say we teach typography in in a way that will most stick. So we still use printing as a sort of a the primary piece of it, or maybe scissors and stuff like that, because. That we still think that's the best way to learn about yeah. typography. Once you feel lead type and, and do a little bit of printing here and there, and so it's not about nostalgia. It's actually what's going to actually stick with you, right? When you're sitting in front of your Facebook, uh, right. you know, problem, yeah, uh, you know, assignment or, or what you're working on. Um, but there's a critical, <laughs> it's a critical making course. That's a term that mm -hmm. we use fairly often. Critical making. Uh, so it's not critical thinking and that it's an active, uh, it's a, it's a verb. Um, and there's a critical making course called design studio and it runs over four semesters. Okay. And so the students are dropped into, um, a curriculum that is dependent on who's teaching it in that semester. So if there's mm. four or five of us teaching it, we'll have maybe 60 to 70 students. 
And of course, we'll meet in advance and talk about what we want to do. But it allows each of those five teachers to initiate a question that's that's consuming him or her in that moment. Um, you know, what what does democracy mean in a fascist regime? Wow. You know, as high uh, or low as it needs to be. How do you choose a color? Like, okay. you know, how, how do you finish a thing in a day? I mean, it could be questions run the wow. gamut between small and large. But that that way of thinking about design, we want them to see that right away and we want to model it for them. And we want to bring in our interests as faculty to share with each other as faculty, mm. which also helps our courses be better because I'm 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 teaching my colleagues uh, assignments. So. I have to actually, I give them feedback on their write-up oh, or, or what their mm-hmm. lecture is about because my students are going to run off into our room and start working on the thing that, Right. so we're kind of building in checks and balances and I would say more peer-driven hmm. um, systems instead of like a hierarchical kind of, there's a mat, right. there's a sort of department head who has to review every syllabus or has to go into every classroom and right. So we do want to have checks and balances that are genuine, that don't exhaust us as faculty, and we want to right. model what it means to make work with uh, with an opinion, with a point of view, right? Um, at the same time that they're learning how to kind of get better at something. Yeah, you know this. I, this is so interesting to me, and I don't, I, I don't want this to sound like some sort of. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways, this this podcast for me has become a way for me to articulate my own education and, and my own kind of mess up my own way of thinking about design. Uh, so I don't mean for this to sound like some sort of referendum on my own undergrad education, but what you're talking about and the way you just explained that is so much of what I have since been able to articulate about the... yeah. I hesitate to use the word problems because that sounds so big, but some of the things that I feel like I missed in my own undergraduate education. And so there are a couple of things there. One uh, is this idea of, of critical making, which I think is really interesting. And I, I read that, that RISD book a couple years ago about critical mm-hmm. making, and, and that was uh, very influential to me. But, you know, my... My undergrad graphic design education was you had your studio classes where you learned, you know, basically software and you learned how to kern and and they were these very practical things. And then your assignments were, you know, make a poster, make a book. It were these very set things. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, one class a semester would be a design history class or an art history class or some sort of quote unquote theory class, but those had no making in them. Those were reading texts, uh, kind of looking at objects, you know, in a slideshow. And so there was no kind of connection between those. And then on top of that, I, I feel like a lot of my education was very much trained in this kind of modernist, uh, mentality that, that you were talking about in that, you know, this is how you make work that is good versus work that is bad. And it is in the service of, of a client and design should be invisible and you don't put your point of view. And so I, I, I don't know if there's a question there other than that. I <laughs> am saying that I, I love the way that you're thinking about this. How do you, I, I guess kind of the, the question I'm getting at, uh, which was a very long way around to get to that is something that you had Mm -hmm. mentioned when you were talking about Yale and you'd mentioned that form is not your, your strong suit, I think was the the way that you said it. And I I guess kind of, (laughs) I'm sorry that this has become a very long question, but something that I've been thinking about a lot and that I've come to understand, you know, maybe even just recently is how form and, you know, kind of the way you defined it as this aesthetic or kind of the artifact of design is actually a container for all sorts of ideas and theories and points of view. And so I'm curious how you think about teaching that colors, type choices, shapes, um, you know, the way an object is made is a way for a designer to embed some sort of point of view in something that the content itself, they might not actually have kind of any authority over when they're working 
you know, in the world. Does that, I'm yeah. sorry, that was a really long way to ask no, that I question. Was, and, and as you were talking, it certainly brought up thoughts that I wanted to expand on, you okay. know, regarding curriculum. But I think as you're, you're mentioning, you know, the, the, the way something looks or the way it acts has to be the vehicle for the, for some messaging, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's just, an, uh, you know, there's no, and I think that's, uh, exciting, right? Um, so to, to, to train, I'll use the word train. It's, a or to, to, to educate students, um, yeah. in various ways to make form or histories of form making, um, which could, which gets into tools and techniques, is very much what we want to do, but I think they they should be kind of owning as much of that as possible because what we saw a few years ago is to ask students to make two posters that uh, contradict each other, you know, didn't have nearly the kind of impact as asking them Hmm. to create two works that have opposite points of view or to change someone's mind. Like, how do you change someone's mind? You don't put a poster up in the middle of the street. So design has a Right. has a has a certain power culturally that we were starting to kind of miss out on just because of the form we wanted them to work with form right and posters are a really great place to work with form but there are also a lot of other ways to work with form so we we had we were privileging certain historical formats that maybe were good practice but we're a bit, I would say we're limiting the actual con- the conversations we can right. have. So the kind con- of conversations we can have now around race and gender and context and sight and, you know, the religious beliefs that someone might have. What does a city look like? I mean, we're in a we're in a city. Could a poster go even if you initiated a poster? We're holding right. students more accountable yeah. uh, to the to the work. But we want to lead them there. We don't want to just drop them into the deep end. So the the fir- the, the early assignments have simpler formal expectations or deliverables <laughs> so the the unit that i did we call the we call our assignments units because it's it's more of a proper education term which is really the container for the learning that's right. happening an assignment there's usually an assignment as part of a unit but a unit also need could have readings lectures a workshop okay uh, an activity so the unit is kind of the complete container and the unit needs to have a question it needs to have learning objectives so there's certain kind of internal checks and balances that we have the unit i did in the fall was was um the formal deliverable was to to design a flag that would fly atop the building that we were in in downtown providence <laughs> and the flag was supposed to represent the graphic design department could have been other things but i felt like given it was their first semester it was a great opportunity for them to do some ethnographic work and be like who what is this department that i just entered as a sophomore right so it kind of like did a you know our units try to do a bunch of things at one time yeah. so they're figuring out who they are they're also trying to figure out who the seniors are and the grad students what is this place about what did it used to be about so they go and talk to the faculty that have been here for a while they look at alumni work they really try to understand oh, the wow. department and not just the field of graphic design right and they, they made a bunch of different flags and they kind of narrowed in on one and so that formal deliverable was primarily Illustrator, although we encouraged them to um, use a few tools that will wave the flag for you, you know, kind oh, of like yeah. simulation tools. And if folks come in with skills from foundation, we have um, a foundation program where they're doing different, they're not just doing kind of Bauhaus foundation. Some of them are coding and working with electronics and some students oh, wow. come in with various skills. So I think our curriculum also is, is meant to build upon what folks know, but mm-hmm. make sure we push them into areas they don't know as well. So I don't know if that was a, a, a clear answer about the formal stuff. I would say there's lots of different forms we yeah. want them to be working with. Yeah. And, and I don't mean graphic forms. However, that is the sort of historical elephant in the room is the sort of two-dimensional fixed right. composition. Right. Do you know how to make composition in a two-dimensional sense that doesn't move. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a skill. I mean, that is a skill and you, you do need to know that. Um, but it's probably not three years worth of effort to get there. It, it's <laughs> right. a lifetime of effort to right. get there. You know? Right. <laughs> do you, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in kind of the students reactions to a project like that, do, you know, and how aware 
and I realize that this is going to be a kind of broad statement and a broad question, but I'm interested in kind of how aware they are of what they think graphic design is and how much of your job is kind of shifting that or, uh, you know, disrupting it a little bit or saying, it's like, well, yeah, graphic design is a, a logo and a poster, but it can also be this other thing. Mm-hmm. I do think that's the that's a big part of the work that we do is a constant opening up yeah. of what it is and what's possible. That it's uh, as an art school or as a department within an art school, it's maybe easier here than in other uh, programs. But we do see graphic design as part of the arts. We do we we're sort of under we are under that umbrella, which means. Okay. We want to teach students how to reinvent, how to how to imagine mm-hmm. the possibilities of tomorrow, not just to learn the best practices that currently exist. So we're 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 a bit more liberal arts slash fine art, for lack of a better way of thinking about it. And so we we are tr- we're trying to give them that um, ideology as we go, and it should be embedded in lots of places. I mean, the kind of speakers we have will show right. that kind of work. Right. Uh, we, we want them to enter the profession, but again, we see the profession fairly broadly. Like you can, you can make, uh, you could be an amazing, um, chef if you want to, you know, like the way you use design more, more than likely you'll probably enter into the tech space or into a commercial advertising space. And, um, and we know that, and we certainly, um, want students to have skills and influences that are, that are meeting those likely pathways. Students come in often, seeing uh you know the technology is sort of such such a huge influence now i think that um many many of them see design as fairly functional as um something that can be learned and understood and held in your hand with that is somewhat finite and and, and i do think we want them to see it as uh, a, a a means to constantly explore and invent and understand yourself right um so it's 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 a kind of a yeah it, it, I would say we try to open it up as we ask them to do more, but we certainly need to offer them very specific examples of what has happened and what is out there and yeah. what it looks like. You know, I want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be that type of interviewer that's about to read something back to you that that you had read uh, or okay. that you had written. Um, this was from the AIGA Ion Design uh, kind of profile on on RISTI's program. And this was a quote from you that really kind of stuck out to me in is a common theme of with other people I've talked to, but you said graphic design is a relative term, not an absolute. So our curriculum has to help define and move along with it. It's a living medium and we won't give up on it. And the reason that, well, one, I just love that in general. Uh, but the reason that I like that, and as that relates to criticism and, and I, I kind of want to talk about design discourse in the widest sense is, and and we've touched on this a bit kind of throughout, but I really want to kind of zero in on this idea that so much of, of what we think of graphic design is, is still very much rooted in the kind of Bauhaus Swiss modernist uh, theories of this is what design is. And, and I've, I've said this many times before, but somewhere along the way, those theories kind of became the law or the way that this is what design is. This is how design is taught. And I think that that has a a big impact on education, but it also has a really big impact on how we critique design, how we talk about design in amongst ourselves as professionals, but also kind of, uh, you know, in the world and to, to a general audience and talking about our customers uh, you know, or the customers of the work and, and things like that. And I'm interested in how you think about evolving the design discourse and kind of what needs to change in 2017 about the ways that we talk about the work that we're making. Yeah. And then you're, are you thinking in an educational context or even in the workplace? I, both. Um, I, you know, I think, I think we've kind of touched a little bit on that in an educational context, but I, I'm really interested in kind of how you think about that kind of in, in both settings. Um, yeah, I think, well, the graphic design term, um, and maybe the, the piece that you read from touched on this, like we, we don't mind that the term itself 
starts to feel misplaced in time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Many programs have renamed themselves or, you know, to visual communication, et cetera. And I don't think we're interested in really chasing the profession or maybe, you know, try, trying to seem like a direct connection to something outside. I think we're okay with being, uh, sort of defining it here, but it, but it is evolving. Mm. Um, meaning graphic is really about, I mean, it's language, it's mark making, it's abstraction. There's there's, the word graphic is really, um, pretty great. So let's let it feel like kind of odd at times and maybe progressive at other times ahead of what, um, what you might want to do in terms of how to, so we, we, I certainly am concerned that graphic designers, uh, who maybe become visual designers at tech companies or right. you know, depending on what their actual job title is, are seen as the surface, you know, the, the, as creating right. the final surface. Yeah. And that's been my uh, question around UX and previous to UX, there was sort of the UI or mm-hmm. um, information architect. Uh, there have been different job titles that I think have really felt like that's a graphic designer, actually. Yeah. Can't, can't you, you know, if, if you become competent in composition and um, typography and aesthetics, and you also understand humans or right. software, right. then you would be a great experience designer or just call that person a graphic designer. So I, I, I'm concerned we're limiting the scope of the term as it is exists in the field or that we're creating too many... Um, is it too many team members, too much specialization? I mean, I think that's up for the, for the individual designer to decide. Uh, I, I, I like a broad definition because I, I like to do different things. And mm-hmm. I think some of our students are super talented in certain areas. They can go off and work in that space for a while, and then maybe they'll move into some other thing. So we certainly want to honor like the the aesthetics or the visual design component to that term, but I do think when when we just we talk about the work, it needs to acknowledge the full spectrum, and I, and I think that marketing and advertising and commerce complicate that because yeah. there's certain things that work, and it's interesting to understand what those are, but those may not actually be the most virtuous of outcomes. Right. right? So I, I think the, commer- the the fact that graphic design is primarily a commercial endeavor in the United States has mm-hmm. has affected its um, our ability to talk about it. Yeah. Europe I, I, I fantasize a bit and I think they're they're always probably pushing to, to retain it, is that the graphic design operates in even more of a cultural space mm-hmm. or in um mm-hmm. The, the discourse can can the, the the projects themselves are a bit more determined by the designers and that and the the the, the voice of the designer right. is more integral to the piece. Here, you might have to take uh, you have to take too much off the table if you're having a discussion. When I talk about the Mets, the Mets logo from the last oh, right. year, right. you know, you can talk about the ligature thing, but can you really talk about all the other aspects of of it without having all those people in the room. So our ability to critique, I think, is also related to our place in mm-hmm. the team. Yeah. Or, or... Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I feel like that's so much of, of what I'm interested in and what I kind of hope that design criticism can be in that, yeah, you know, it's great. Like, let's talk about typography and colors and ligatures and things like that. But let's also talk about economics and capitalism and how that stuff is influencing the work that we're making. There's almost interesting thing where if something gets big enough and it, and so integrated in culture, we almost don't even think of it uh, as design anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you know, how does the graphic designer kind of get back into that conversation and realize that they can, uh, you know, we can play a role in that in some, some capacity. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, think of um, John Waters did a commencement speech that's now been turned into a book about changing, changing the world from the inside. Oh, yeah. I think that like Rob's work at Google Design, Mm -hmm. and just having um, individuals who understand 
design and its full complexity that there are aesthetics. There's a cultural value to design that Steve Jobs talked about lifting society up right. with quality design. I mean, I think you have that that ha if you see Steve Jobs as a designer, which which I did, um, then that worked pretty well. Yeah. So it's so how do you get business leaders to to understand it? I think what Michael Beirut and Jessica Helfand are doing makes is, is along those lines as well. So yeah. If we if we if we hold on to color and typography as kind of the end all be all, then we'll lose out on some of the more complex discussions. Right. But but we clearly need to have some craft or skill. We're makers after all. Um, maybe not every one of us. We don't all need to do the same things, but I think our profession needs to have a have a, a, a tactile or a sensory uh, sort of needs to have a craft behind it. Yeah. You know, that that leads into one of my final final questions just to start wrapping this up. Um, I'm interested. This is a question that I've asked everybody that I've talked to and has become uh, really one of the, the more interesting questions for me is what what are kind of very specifically what are the issues or the topics or the subjects that designers should be talking about today about kind of our work and and what it's doing well i've been considering uh and working in a space of like web as a publishing platform um for a little while and in fact at RISD we're we're thinking about publishing a journal that would be print or web or both. Mm. And it comes out of a few of us. Paul Solelis is, is here and oh, certainly yeah. interested. Yeah. James Goggin is here. Lucy Hitchcock. There's many of us who have worked Bethany Johns in a, in a publication capacity, whether it's as designer or as publisher. And I think that there's the collapsing the distance between designer and end user right. or, or, or yeah. recipient, I think is a, is 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 amazing. I mean, it's we're in an era where you can actually um, make a thing, and many people can see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, as much as I love fixed compositions, publications, printing, right. I, I I do right. think that there's there is potentially a split in our field. For one, I think there's always been one around image making. You know, right. those who create images to to communicate ideas have always been a bit different than the types of folks who, who are good, good at systems work. Um, right. So, mm -hmm. and I talked to Dan Michelson a bit for a class. We, we put together a publication called For Within, which was a book oh, that yeah. was made from the web. And that was a, a 2014 class where we sort of finished it after mm -hmm. and put it out there. So I, mean, I think, so I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll answer your question in maybe a circuitous way touching on a few kind of micro responses and see if they can collect. But, but I think the, the, the college environment, the university environment is also a, an opportunity to kind of offer some ways of thinking about our profession or some points of conversation um, that, and Paul Solelis has certainly taught uh, directly in this space too, in his um, experimental publishing course. Right. What is it? What, what are we designing? Like what is the thing and how do we do it? Right. Um, I mean, I, I, that class did not have any InDesign in it. We made a book with no InDesign. So did Gutenberg, for that matter. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, the tools we use have always progressed and changed. Yeah. So I, I think we become static if, we, if, if there's a sort of a sense of fear or uh, an attachment to a, to a certain mm -hmm. either tool or an outcome. I mean, so should books have paragraph numbers on it? I'm working on a new version of that software now. Um, it's called Bindery, and so we we out we we put out the uh, open source code that generated the book from the browser, and it all runs on GitHub and Jekyll. And so I think there's certain offerings that designers can make to each other. Yeah. So we can talk about uh, what we're doing in terms of writing and podcasts, and, and I think what you're um, offering is tremendous, and 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 modeling a certain kind of like. Um, way of understanding uh, critically understanding what we're doing we can also produce projects that other people can jump in on or play with or talk about or download and i think the curriculum itself at RISD is trying to do that as well but i but i think that sort of looking at um uh 
form as a kind of point of conversation is good. I would love to see there be many different discussions happening. And I think maybe something that you've tapped into is kind of like, well, where, where, where is one of them? Yeah. (laughs) Any of them? You know, I just wanted to thank you so much for this conversation. This was so interesting to me on a lot of levels. And I know I'll be thinking about this, uh, this conversation for a while and for, for reaching out and for, for the work that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it as well. This episode was recorded on May 9th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.